Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium podcast. This session is from the Big Screen Symposium held in Auckland on the 4th and 5th of December 2020. In this session, two-time Academy Award-nominated producer Fanola Dwyer, whose projects include Brooklyn and an education, shares her approach to filmmaking using the film Brooklyn as a case study. Fanola talks to Carthew Neal, Academy Award-winning producer for Jojo Rabbit, about the response to challenges thrown up during production that ultimately achieved this ambitious film. So, you've just come back from London. Um, Before we start talking about Brooklyn, I was interested to know what has it been like in London and England this year? Because obviously we've had a big year, the whole world has had a big year. And from New Zealand, you know, you can look out and see uh, what's happening around the world. But what has it actually been like on the ground in the UK uh, as a producer? I think probably like for everybody, um, and it's great to be here, by the way, so thank you for inviting me. Um, COVID, like the pandemic, took us all by surprise. So I think for the first, you know, few weeks, it was always like, well, is it like China recovered in nine weeks, so it's only we're only looking at nine weeks at the most. And then as it kind of went on and on, you know, I think, yeah, it was just a lot of readjusting and people kind of going, well, we're not going to make anything for a while. So a lot of development, everybody, development totally intensified and the writers were all completely exhausted. <laughs> that seemed to be for the first few months. And then, yeah, I think people found ways to make stuff. Film London say production's back at sort of 85%. I'm not sure whether it's really quite as much as that. There's a lot in pre-production, but quite a lot of shows are are stopping because the virus has, like, you know, got rather out of hand in the UK. But I think, you know, people... I think we're very, as, you know, sort of content makers, film and television, we're very resilient anyway. And as a producer there's always obstacles and a lot of our jobs about solving problems. So I think there's real optimism, you know, that we can still get things done. And it's how, it's like what you, what can you do rather than what can't you do? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, every production is almost like, we're very agile because every production is almost like a new beginning. Mm. So in that way, of all the industries, I think possibly um, we're in a good industry, used to a lot of change, right? And so that's yeah. pretty pretty normal. Uh, despite this year being absolutely extraordinary. Uh, So in terms of um, Brooklyn, the reason why we're talking about Brooklyn today is it was five years ago that it was released. But what is amazing, I think, about it is that it was an independent production, that you sourced the the rights to the book, you hired the writer, or you you collaborated with the writer, you found a director, a cast, you sold the film at Sundance, and you then with your team, um, went on to be nominated for the Academy Awards. And so that is like a, a ginormous journey, and I think it's really an aspirational journey uh, to be making an independent film that, that goes all the all the way, as is said about these uh, films when they reach the Academy Awards. And so it's pretty aspirational, so I'm really excited to hear more about how that, that process came about, as much as we can talk about in an hour. So let's start by watching the trailer to just kind of remind us of what the film's about. Step over this way, please. Get out of the line. Next. Passport, please. Welcome to the United States, ma'am. Dear Rose, I miss you and Mother and think about you every day. The most important news is that I have a job and I'm in a boarding house. 
I was glad to see you finally got some letters from home today. <laughs> I wish that I could stop feeling that I want to be an Irish girl in Ireland. Homesickness is like most sicknesses. It will pass. Would you dance with me? I'm not Irish. So what were you doing at an Irish dance? I really like Irish girls. I met somebody, an Italian fella. We're going to Coney Island at the weekend. But do you have a bathing costume? Why didn't you tell me to put my costume on underneath my clothes? I thought you'd know. Tommy. I want to ask you something, and you're going to say, oh, it's too soon. Will you come for dinner and meet my family? I'd love to. You like Italian food? I'm going to say splash anytime I see problems. Good idea. Splash! You just splashed his mother, his father, and the walls. Let's go again. <laughs> Ready? I should say that. We don't like Irish people. Hey, hey. What? We don't. That is a well-known fact. Um. Oh. <laughs> Ever sudden. I'm not a very hurt. You want to go home, I guess. How would it be for you if I did go home? I'd be afraid. Afraid that I wouldn't come back. Yeah. Home is home. Ireland must seem very backward to you now. Is that Jim Farrell I saw? He's a catch for someone. I have a life halfway across the sea. Your life here could be just as good. If you go back, I have nobody. I want you to stay here with me. I actually I watched the film again last night and it's a very, very emotional and very funny film and um, it's beautiful and like speaks to, uh, you know, it's historic, it's set in the 1950s, but it speaks to, you know, the idea that we uh, travel and we've been, you know, traveling and love is sort of as difficult across borders and that speaks to me particularly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so it was really, really beautiful to see the film again. So well done. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was, it was great. The trailer that I watched, um, uh, there was just like so one of the interesting things that it's not about the, the film itself, but it was the billing block was so large. There were so many people involved in this <laughs> film. And it is, you know, it was a period film shot in three locations um, around the world. So as an independent film, that's like quite an undertaking. Was it, you know, this is a, a silly question, but was it an easy film to make? No. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll sort of start at the beginning. A friend of mine, uh, an American friend, gave me the book. Really because he just sort of not, he's always like, I don't know what makes a good film, but it was more that he knew that my mother had come from, at a very similar time, from Ireland to New Zealand and always missed Ireland and, you know, and then kind of the same happened with me going to the UK. Every time I come back to New Zealand every year, I'm like, why am I not living here? And so it spoke to me, but it also struck me that in a way, we all, it's a very universal experience because once we leave home, that relationship to home changes forever, whether it's just going from one part of Auckland to another or changing countries, continents. Um, but the book is quite, I don't know if any of you have read the novel, but it's quite an internal novel. So when I first read it, I loved it, but I was sort of like, I couldn't really see how you'd dramatize it. So I thought about it for a long time and I also thought it would be a very expensive movie to make 
and without a star in the lead role, how could you get, you know, 30, 40 million to make it, which is what I thought when I read it that you'd need. And I thought about it for a long time, and then I was in New York and buying another copy, and it was kind of post an education and the Oscars, and I'd sort of figured out in my head how you might be able to do it. So um, Colin Troy Bean, a friend, the friend who gave me the book actually was at a... Um, doing a, at a book sale. He's a rare book dealer in New York. So I thought, well, I'll ask him if you know if Colin has sold the rights. He probably has. So I met, I saw him that weekend, and then by chance I met Colin, who was, his people were in negotiation with someone else to get the rights. He had turned down, like, producers like Scott Rudin, who's a very big and established, successful American producer, and it was just like timing, really, that I met Colm that weekend. And after our lunch, he said, if you want the book, it's yours. And that was, so that was all kind of like meant to be. And then I gave it to Nick Hornby, who I just worked with on education. And he, he, he really responded to it. And he thought he could find a way to, you know, tell the story. Um, and he wrote a beautiful screenplay. And then it was... It sort of became quite, actually, we had quite a long, I wouldn't say struggle, but it took a long time to find the director. Because Nick, actually, when he writes, he doesn't write a lot of prose. He doesn't tell you how to feel. He doesn't say she was devastated. or So you've got to read it carefully and you've got to, you know, he just isn't that kind of writer. And often, actually, with both the films we did with him, directors who turn those projects down say, God, the script really changed. And we're like, no, not a word's changed, actually. Mm. It's just all, it's sort of almost all there in what he doesn't say. Um, so he's, I mean, he's a brilliant writer, but he's, he's a spare, he's a spare writer. So just to, just to sort of step back a bit in terms of, as a producer, are you, when you're looking for work, are you reading a lot of books? Is that a source that you often go to? And are you getting access to those books before they hit the shelves? Or are you... Or well, with, with Brooklyn, I did read it in proof, but I didn't actually go after it for, gosh, it was, I, I mean, a good year, I think. And in a way, it worked in my favour that Colm Tobin had already turned down a lot of people because with Scott Rudin, he said he just wasn't offering enough money and he knew other people he had paid more for, his other novelist friends. So that just worked out in my favour. But, yeah, a lot of what we do is from, is from novels, yeah. And as a producer, I think, you know, in terms of talking about you generating this work, you start, you know, starting from a book as a good source place rather than a, a director who's maybe written something already, it sort of means that you, uh, you, you're imagining it from the very beginning. So could you imagine, like, the film when you first read the book? Not when I first read it, because it was very internal. I was just thinking, how could you dramatise it? Because so much was in her head. And... Then it was like, well, it was all from her point of view, not quite the outside, you know, the inside out, but it was, then I thought of it's always her. Yeah, I started to see it. Um, but the characters were very vivid in his novel. And then what how Nick Hornby describes the adaptation as he describes it as, you know, turning the volume up. So he quite likes adapting, you know, quite lean novel, you know, sort of strong stories, but quite lean that he can then put some flesh on the characters and, and which so did, was an education was kind of like that too. 
And so in the adaptation, did did the story begin or end in different places or was the whole book contained in this in the, the screenplay? He got rid of some of um, Ailish's family. She had brothers and went to Liverpool first, I think. You know, like, so he just got rid of that. But it was always clear to me in the book that you would need to take her all the way back to New York. She'd need to be back in Brooklyn and see Tony. So that was the only thing I said to Nick um, after he read it is that, She's got to go, you know, for a film, you have to take her all the way back. And he was, he totally agreed. And in watching the film, it feels very efficient. It feels a very efficient um, storytelling. Yeah. Is that the case in the script? Like, how much did it change from the script to the finished film? Was it broader and you, you know, obvious? Was Not that much, really. I think in terms of the trying to put it together, when it sort of became clear that in a way, because you know, dramas had sort of gone out of fashion at that time too. So distributors and the studios, like The Focus and some of the, you know, the high-end indies, the searchlights, who ultimately they bought it, there was that, you know, sort of feeling or belief that audiences didn't want to go and see drama and they didn't want to go and see period drama and, you know, and it's a woman's film, you know, we came up and nothing really happens, you know, we'd get all of those things. So... Um, <laughs> So it, uh, over the course of time, it became clear that we certainly weren't going to get forty million, you know, for it. <laughs> and so, and so, um, when you came up against those sort of convers people telling you that, like, what was it about the story that you felt like that kept you going? You know, because there's a lot of there's a lot of noise and setbacks in this whole well, process. Well, yeah, you always get way more no's, you know, than you get yeses anyway. So. Um, I think it's just I just had a strong instinct that it could that it could really work commercially, and I mean that's the most important thing that there's an audience for it. Um, and if there's not a, you know, if you can't get the budget that you first envisage, or like and our first budgets were over twenty five million dollars US, and we ended up making it for just under eleven. And I wouldn't have really thought that was possible, but then it was just trying to figure out how to do it and how to do it well. And during the course, to go back to your question of what changed in the script, when we got it down to the, you know, the sort of just under 11, there were some scenes that needed to go. So I just would talk to Nick about them. And, like, he had a scene where they did a... Um, they took the subway out to... or the train out to Coney Island. And that was going to be very expensive to do. Like, it was... And I said to him it's a scene that could kind of hit the cutting room floor anyway, potentially. And he's like, no, it's totally fine to drop it, but just make Coney Island really good. It's like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So he was very... And, like, I'd say nearly every film I do that has a completion bond, for those of you who know what that is, I always have a couple of scenes worked out with the director and writer if they're separate that we could drop if we run into trouble. And that always satisfies the bond, you know, like, rather than, you know sort of slash and burn or just know that you've got scenes that actually could could go if we absolutely had to. So we had a couple of those and we don't miss them at all. I think they probably would have hit the cutting room floor. And so so obviously having Nick Hornby um, writing the script is a fantastic, you know, fantastic relationship and mm. a fantastic name. So, you know, the first step in the process was getting that script. And then what was the process? Because like you said, you know, you had to really very, you know, adjust the budget to the market. But what was the, the next step in the process in terms of figuring out what that uh, price would be or what the vision of the film would be? I think getting a director and, and casting and 
we didn't, you know, I had sort of thought chances were that we would end up with a director who either was a sort of, you know, understood or had experience of the immigrant experience, which is actually with John Crowley. What, he was Irish, but he had moved to the UK and he had worked in America quite a lot on Broadway. He's a theatre and film director and TV. Um, but it, took a, it just took a little long time. And then we attached Rooney Mara to play the role that ultimately Saoirse played. And I should say, when I optioned the novel, Saoirse was 15. And I remember the day her agent rang me and said, I know Rooney's attached, but if anything ever happens, just know that Saoirse loves the book. And I'm like, how old is she now? And she was like, 18 then. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes these, like, this slow journey works in your favour because she was absolutely, you know, she was sort of perfect. But when we got, and John sort of, you know, he fell off a different project. Our original director fell off. John came on to ours. Rooney, Rooney came off it. Because actually a lot of the directors who wanted to work with Rooney wanted to make something much darker and kind of gutsier, really, which wasn't what Brooklyn was, you know. And, yeah, and then Rooney felt she, yeah, so she, you know, which totally understandable, she wandered off. And, and it was kind of great because Saoirse was old enough, but the combination of working with the director, and, you, you know, this business is so fickle, so you have to, you have to just kind of keep pushing very firmly it's like, oh, someone, you know, director, they're not hot at the minute. And you come up across that all the time. And But I was very confident in John from all the theatre work I'd seen. And he had a really good handle on the story. And he's brilliant with performances. And it's, and it's a real performance piece. So, And then Saoirse, you know, she'd been Oscar nominated as a, you know, young actress in Atonement. But her kind of, the last three films she'd done, they just hadn't, they hadn't been great films, nothing to do with her. So distributors would go, oh, audiences don't want to see her. And you'd go, what are you talking about? She's an amazing actress. So we kind of knew that we weren't making life easy for ourselves, but actually it's really important to hold on to that sort of integrity of what you want to do and not cast the wrong person or go with a director who's hot, but actually you kind of go, do they really understand the story? Because then the film won't be any good. So it was just like really always keeping the sort of, you know, the story and the integrity of the project kind of firmly front and centre in your mind. And what is that unusual to go to? Because to me it seems a little bit unusual to go to an actress ahead of, you know, initially to Rooney ahead of a director. Is that something that was unusual to you or is that quite normal? It, it has happened quite a lot actually. But I think it was after we just hadn't got any traction with directors. So we thought, well, why don't we... And as is the way with the American agencies, they'll give your script to actors and they'll say, so-and-so wants to play it and so-and-so, you know. So, you know, we met with Rooney. I met with her and then Nick met with her. And, and she was great. And her grandparents are Irish and she's a phenomenal actress. And uh, but, she, but she was just off Dragon Tattoo, so a lot of the directors, the sort of auteur directors too. So that's the other thing. The script was in such good shape, so a lot of auteur directors don't necessarily want to come on to something that's, you know, kind of so perfectly formed in some ways. Right. <laughs> so it's a, yeah, it's a kind of interesting dilemma. So, so when we couldn't, when we weren't getting traction with directors, we thought, well, actually, we should, Rooney would be fantastic and let's attach her and... 
And when you, you know, start that conversation, do you say, I mean, is it a say, saying we're going to go to a director next and does the actor and the agents become part of the discussion of approval of who that director, like are you well, welcoming it, them into that yeah, discussion? Yeah, totally. Or? It wasn't approval, but yeah, no, we totally talked really about it, yeah. And it was and it was great. And, you know, these sorts of things happen all the time. And, you know, the great thing was we had a really good relationship and do have a great relationship with Rooney, so we'll do something in the future for sure. And it was... You know, she almost like got too. She really got too old, and Saoirse got old enough. It's kind of right. like, <laughs> so. You know, there's sometimes there's just you know a lot of luck and you know plays into your hand. One of the interesting things because the people, all the people you're talking about, are really ex actually experienced um, and well-known names. And so when you say they weren't, people were saying they weren't, um, you know, big enough to support this film. You know, to to raise the. You're really saying raise the finance to the budget that you. Wanted because if you were wanting to make a film for a couple of million dollars, I'm sure it would have been much easier. So yeah. it was a little bit about the scale that you were sort of the bar you were setting yourself, and knowing you needed to raise that money and looking for the appropriate cast and packaging. Yeah, and while that was all, good, we probably got the budget down to about 18, and that was still too much. And then it was um, a really great producer, Jeremy Thomas, without having read the script, he just said to me, with those elements, as in Saoirse and John. He's like, I think you need to make it for, you know, under 12. So I was like, okay, now I've got to figure out how we can get another six million. Because we shot in Ireland, we shot in Dublin, we shot on location in Ireland. So we moved everybody, you know, on location for 10 days or something. And then we went to, we did most of Brooklyn and Montreal. And then we went to New York for Coney Island. And a, the for those of you who've seen the film, the kind of brownstone street, you can't find that street anywhere and it just sells that you're in Brooklyn, you know, so it's kind of keeping the magic alive. So we did a day where Saoirse was sort of in and out of outfits. I think there was like, you know, 14 scenes or something. And, um, I mean, she's yeah, she's just incredible, sort of old Saoirse, young Saoirse. And then um, we did a day at Coney Island and it was the last day we could have shot at Coney Island before they what opening for the summer. So we just like snuck in. So it was, so we, and how we did it in the end, or, and I'd done it on a tiny little film years before, was we were just a very small group that traveled those countries and we picked up, you know, so the designer was on his own. He didn't have any art director, any anybody. The cinematographer just had his focus puller. And so it was everybody really buying into kind of that, okay, we'll just work with, you know, locals. So it really pushed us all outside our comfort zone, but but it worked. And so that was the that was the end um plan. So the first plan was to shoot in, in to shoot in New York. Yeah. And then that's where the the main cost savings were when you started to look at trying to bring the budget down. Yeah, a combination really of having less people, yeah, moving around with less people, but also then it's a union film, as you know, if you shoot in America, so that adds a whole extra layer. I mean, like in terms of SAG union, because it was still union shoot those two days. Yeah, there was just a lot of knock-on costs if you shoot in America. But it was a, it was a combination. It was sort of a combination of things, because we were always going to shoot in Ireland as well. Well, the film look, it looks so big and it, it has such scope to it. So you don't you don't miss you don't feel like you're miss you know no, you've cobbled so. it together or you've reduced mm. the budget. But did you ever feel as you were you know slashing the budget down to that number? You, you was there was that the lowest you thought you could do it at? And there was just no way because it's an interesting thing of sort of matching the production cost and your vision with this market 
person telling you it has to be this number for the elements you're putting yeah, in. Yeah, and I suppose it wasn't ever anybody saying it has to be. It's just like you, you know, as you said, every, every kind of pro project has its sort of market value, I suppose, and you've just got to go, can I make it, you know, it was... And it had become quite a personal project for me at this point too, and I, I didn't want to just make a film. I wanted to make a really great film. So it's like, how do you keep that bar, bar really high? I mean, I just... It's like, how can I do it for this little money? Can we do it well? And um, really, I think deciding to do it as a co-production was actually the only way we could even raise that much money because we weren't going to get, you know, 11-odd million from the market because it came from structuring it as a co-production. And we made up a sort of a lookbook of what we were looking for for our Brooklyn locations and then my assistant did a chart of all the different, like, tax incentives and <laughs> credits you can get. And we sent that round to a lot of places. And Canada, you know, had the... Not Toronto so much, but Montreal, it was kind of like, actually, should go and have a look there because that might work creatively. It was a combination of, you know, cre creative first because... And then what are the, you know, what are the tax incentives? So... You know, a big part of the budget, I didn't actually work out the percentage, but it might even be as much as 80% was from, like, soft money. So the equivalent of a film commission in the UK, because that was a UK, Canada, Ireland, and the Irish equivalent to the film commission, and telefilm, and then tax credits, pre-sales. So it was sort of like, you know, building it. All those names on the billing, billing block. <laughs> yeah. So sort of that was like, I think it was something like, you know, maybe it wasn't quite as much as 80%, 70-80% was from, you know, like soft money. So you're sort of like numbers from your sales agent, then it was only for the commercial money, which was the gap, you know. And so at the point that you, and the, the point that you went to these partners, you had um, Saoirse on board and John and your script. That was your sort of package that you were taking around. And so from that moment... When, what was the sort of time frame from taking it out to getting into pre-production? It's um, a good question. And I should say, when you say, you know, I mean, like, Saoirse now, you know, everything changed for her, sort of with Brooklyn, and then she did the two films with Greta. So, but before that, it had been, there had been these sort of raft of films, you know, as I say, had nothing to do with her. They just weren't very good. So, Sersha wasn't Sersha when she made Brooklyn, you know. Mm. She sort of became, she became Sersha again. <laughs> and then she's, she's like the young Meryl Streep of her generation for sure. She's phenomenal. So, and John as well. You know, it's like interesting how, you know, time just, you, you know what it's like. Everything can turn on a dime, which is what's great about this business too because everything can turn on a dime. So, but the process, I remember meeting with Emery who played Tony in New York, I think it was like maybe the beginning of like it was London Film Festival. I'd been to the opening and then I met with him about three days later. So that was probably October. And we were shooting by the end of March. But I went to Canada to scout it. The director couldn't come. So he was like, well, see what you think. I went to Toronto and to Montreal, met with Telefilm. I'd already talked to them on the phone, met with them, met with potential co-producers, because to do a co-production, you have to have partners in each of these countries and you've got to find the right partners. Um, they didn't think it could happen that fast because 
telefilm is actually quite a kind of slow, you know, machine. When I said we wanted to be shooting by the end of March, but we were. So that was sort of like October time. So it's still like six months. Which seems really fast to get a co-production together because you are often with, with soft money, you're working to deadlines of yeah. funding deadlines, which can slow things down, whereas the, the market money can move a little bit faster normally. So did you have that line, did you have that plan sort of lined up and you were, you know, going knocking on doors or was it sort of a bit more... Not really, because I went to Canada to explore if it could work. Mm. And once I thought it could work, it was like, okay. And I'd never been to Montreal and actually, you know, when... when I think it was like the 70s when everything kind of moved, the sort of business moved out of Montreal when they, you know, became French-speaking a lot of the sort of like heavy business went to Toronto. So there are a lot of these amazing empty buildings, um, you know, banks, municipal buildings. And so they, they were perfect for our department store and where they got married. And, and then a lot of the architecture in Montreal is done by the same architects who did some of the kind of classic, you know, buildings like Empire State in New York. So it actually doubles for sort of New York, Brooklyn, incredibly well. And, and, Which uh, I didn't know till I went there. <laughs> and so, 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 that, so when you went on your scout, you were sort of doing both, like your location scouting and looking for finance. Yeah, and co-producer partners who would need to run all the telefilm and apply because we couldn't apply for those funds, yeah. Right. And so then, you know, that's... It feels like we've already talked about like quite a number of years, um, and, and, the, and the pre-production hasn't started. It's a long process, right? This putting these films together. Yeah. Um, once you got the the green light um, to start, um, what was the you know did the obviously what were the sort of the the process then, and what was sort of like the, some of the stumbling blocks that came up? And because now you've got now you've got. Um, now you've got a production that's, you know, less money than you, half the money you originally anticipated. Um, you're travelling around the world and to three different locations, um, but you've got the green light to make, to make it. So it's sort of starting now, but you've, you're putting the team together. What were some of the, um, and, and maybe talking about, like, what were some of the issues around how you put the team together, the pre-production team and the HODs? Yeah, there were a lot of challenges after that. Like, Telefilm said they'd commit a certain amount of money, then very close to closing, closing of the financing, they changed their mind and slashed it. And anyway, then they went back up, but not quite to what they had. And it was a very bizarre process. Then they they don't, you know, they don't sign off on their agreements, so you can't use that in the they don't sign the IPA, so you can't bank on their money. So then we had to and all the vendors Sodex, so then we had to find someone to underwrite nearly 2 million Canadian, um, or we had a 2 million gap, and the BBC films wouldn't do it, and, like, it was, it was a very... Raising. It was, yeah. It was, like, literally putting one's house on the line, which wouldn't do that again. But it was... And, and I, you know, everyone said, oh, Telefilm will be good for the money, but they just don't do this. But, like, nobody had said they don't do that till, you know, like, it was, it was like best kept secret or something. Um, so there were a lot, and there were things like um, Tony's uh, family, you know, and the little boy who's a New Yorker, we, and we told our Canadian partners this, 
that John Crowley, the director, was going to work with his theatre casting director in New York to find that family because they have very little screen time. So, and you always want to cast the best actors you can, always. And so this great um, casting director in New York, he found Tony's family. It was great we found them. And then our Canadian co-producer said, oh, you can't cast those people because under, you know, telefilm law, <laughs> you, can't, you can only, I think you can only have one American actor. I can't remember exactly now. So then it was like, so my, John's like, what am I going to do? And, um, and he had looked at Canadians and didn't find what he was after. And with a film like Brooklyn, you know, like it's moving, 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 you, you have to kind of like establish these characters and yeah, they've just got to be, it's got to be like really brilliant. And during trying to find co-production partners in Canada, I met quite a lot of people in Toronto. So I had a, I had a couple of phone of friends and I said, what do I do? Like, is this a thing? And they said, oh, it is, but you can apply, Telefilm has an exception to the rule. And of course, I couldn't like say to my co-producers, this is an exception to the rule, you idiots. Um, I had to say, oh, apparently, I just heard that there's this thing called the exception to the rule. Do you know about that? You know, like, and it was right, right down to the wire. I think it was like three days before we were going to shoot that scene, which was, you know, very early in our schedule in Montreal they agreed that we could, I think we replaced two of them, but we kept the little boy and we kept one of his brothers. Who are so um, great, they're so great. Yeah, <laughs> and, but it was just like, hold, you've got to hold your nerve and not just go, the easy thing to do would have just been like, oh, we just have to recast, you know, like. But I'm always like, since I've been producing really, and maybe even when I started in this business, it's like I won't take no for an answer. It's like there has to be a solution. And there is always a solution, I really believe that too. But... Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was kind of so important to keep those actors or, like, the key ones in that, you know, like, really, really important. Well, the film is so much about the, you know, rides on the chemistry of all the actors too. I mean, were you able to get them in a room together before you started because they were from different parts of the world or, or was that something pre-Zoom that you could do a Zoom <laughs> yeah, no, chemistry test? No, there were no chemistry tests. Um, there were no, chemi no chemistry tests at all? No. Emery came over to Ireland when we were doing rehearsals, so he rehearsed with, with Sish mm. and Donal. But actually, just to back up to what you were saying about putting the team together, it was, I mean, I don't know what it's like for you, and you've worked out of the country now as well, but, you know, we'll often, and how we achieve these things, especially on limited budgets, and let's face it, you really have enough, doesn't really matter what the budget is. We like to work with the same people because it's, there's a shorthand and, you know, we just, yeah, it's tight, you're tight already and there's a lot of good reasons to do that. But when you do a co-production, you have to have heads of department from the different countries. So the sort of the team went out the window and we worked with a cinematographer, a French-Canadian cinematographer and designer, who both of those two in particular, just, I mean, they were absolutely brilliant. Yves Bollinger is one of the best DPs I've worked with, I'd say. He's so fast, so good, so creative, so into solving problems. Um, 
And, you know, we shot that, I was going to check the number of days, but it was five-day weeks everywhere because in Canada and Ireland, they don't do six-day weeks. Or if you do, it's like so, it was so out of our budget range. And, um, and we shot in three countries, so it was, I think it was like 32 days or something. Anyway, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot. And without working with, you know, and you always try and work with the best people you can, for sure. And, but Eve was very experienced, and he had just done Wild with Reese Witherspoon, which Nick had done the screenplay for, and my friend had produced, so she just said he was amazing. And so that was, like, just really great luck. And my regular designer I worked with, a Kiwi, actually, Andrew McAlpine, he was going to do it and then couldn't do it, and his American agent said, why don't you look um, at Francois? And he was just incredible. So sometimes being pushed outside your comfort zone can be, like, a really great thing. And that was really good to be reminded, actually, that... Um, and we worked with a, an editor who hadn't done a lot because we couldn't afford, like, some of the editors we worked with before... But he's a brilliant editor and he's since been Oscar nominated. And, and again, it's great to actually go, right, let's just roll the dice. And he was like, I don't need an assistant, but I'll come on the road with you. I'll do everything myself. And yeah. And, so how, and so when you were um, choosing these people, what were the sort of, did you have to go to them explaining that you were um, on a shoestring? <laughs> uh, I mean, was that sort of part of the initial pitch? to these people you didn't know, or, or was that sort of... Yeah, it's a good pitch, good. isn't it? We've got no money. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah no, I think, it's, I think it's always really good to be realistic about what the challenges are with something, and if it includes, look, we've got limited money, so we've all got to be creative. I had, I was often asked how we made it for so little, and my script supervisor, who did come with us to, to the, on the journey to the three countries, because I think and probably from being an editor, that that was a kind of an essential person that needed to be with us. And um, when we were on location in Ireland, she rang me in my room, and we've done a lot of uh, jobs together, and she's like, Fanola, this hotel doesn't have cotton sheets. And <laughs> so that would be when people asked me, I'd say we stayed in hotels without cotton sheets. And as in, we just, we like all got in a minivan together, which probably you, you guys will do anyway, but it was just like we really, it was sort of just down and dirty and, um, and that it was great. And everybody was up for that. And, and, you know, really when you're sort of interviewing or talking to people, some people would just go, oh, no. I mean, like I had line, line producers who didn't want to do the job, first assistant directors who changed their mind. Because some, it was a combination of not really thinking it could be done for either the money and the time or just going, I... I can work on a studio movie and go to Pinewood every day and see my family and I don't really want to have to do something that sounds too hard, you know. One of the things um, I've learned working overseas is that, you know, as a producer, um, you've got your people who you deal with, HODs and the director and the writer and the cast, but the, when you're bringing those HODs with you, that if, if they don't have other people around them, it makes it their job a lot harder because they're having to work with locals and so... We, I mean, it's often hard, they all want to bring their own people, right? And so was that sort of something that you were having to trim down? Was that a really difficult... Oh, yeah, that's what I mean. We were this tiny group. We were like a travelling, really small, because really that was another way of being able to make sure I wasn't compromising what, you know, the director and everybody had to put on, you know, money to spend putting it on screen. 
And so to stay somewhere that was like really cheap and without cotton sheets, I mean, I know it sounds funny, but actually that's way cheaper than staying somewhere not, you know, it, and that money isn't going to, and as long as it's, you know, comfortable enough. Clean. And we were never, <laughs> and we were never, I mean, and actually all the sort of like UK or non-Irish crew when we were on Location Island, we stayed at a place further away than the Irish crew because the Irish crew get paid for travel time as well as their lunch break. So they were put actually in the better place right by where, like two minutes from where we were shooting. But some of them had to come and check where we were because they thought, oh, we must be in the smart place. And then, then you'd hear them saying, oh, my God, you guys are in a real dump, you know. And be like, that's right, we are because, because we don't get paid to travel to work. So, you know, like it's, it was all that sort of thing. But it was... And it wasn't, that wasn't ideal because in an ideal world, we would have all been staying together because that's just better for communication and everything. But the places we were shooting were too tiny. So, you know, um, but no, so that was part of when we met with the HODs was like, this is how it's going to be. So if that isn't how you want to work, which we totally get, don't come on board with, don't come on the journey because you're going to be on your own and you're going to have to work with strangers in three different countries. Yeah, sounds sounds like a great adventure to be leading people yeah. through. Scary yeah. one. Um, but you've talked a little bit also about staying agile and all the changes that you had to make mm. from your original vision, but while you know holding on to what you wanted the film to be. Were there other examples of that um, in the creative process too? Staying open through the process um, where things change, like we talked about from script to the final cut. But in the um, in the rehearsal process or in the um, shooting process where did the did because you're on such a tight budget? Were you able to make changes and adjust, or was it really you were sticking to your plan? No, we did make some changes, and I think it's always, you know, good to sort of like, especially like a good idea can come from anywhere, any time, or or sometimes something doesn't work out the way the director envisaged. So you you need to have a change. You can't be that rigid that you go, no, it's this way or no way. But during we did do during rehearsals and. In Dublin, we did a read-through and Nick, came, Nick Hornby came over for that and Julie Walters was there. We didn't have everybody, but it was it was a very kind of fun read. And um, at the end of the read-through, Saoirse and Donal came over to um, me and Nick and, and Saoirse was like, Donal's missing a scene. And actually, if you look at Brooklyn, the sort of doubles, the sort of like mirror doubles of every sort of like those two characters have a scene then she'll have a scene with the other character on the other side and it's and the novels like that actually as well and and Jonah was absolutely Nick was like you know they talked about it for really not a long time and Nick's like you're absolutely right yeah you need a you need a beat there so he went into the director's office and wrote the scene and it's kind of word for word what he wrote that day in the film so I think that was kind of great. And Donald was very smart. When, we, when John and I met him after he'd read the script, he said, he just like, I love it. My job is to make her want to stay with me. Like, so he knew exactly what he had to get Saoirse's character to do. And it's so, like, that's what I, I love this job when those sorts of moments happen because you're just like, there is an actor, top of his game, he totally knows. It's like simple, it's so simple is never going to be overthinking it. And actually, when we were shooting in Ireland, we did the scene at the wedding where they're dancing, 
And at that moment, you are wanting her to stay with him. So we were like, oh, my God, Emory's going to have to be so good because <laughs> otherwise, you know, it's like it's not going to work when she goes back. But And we knew that anyway, but having... And we didn't design it like that to shoot complete, like to shoot the beginning and the end first. I mean, you wouldn't if you had the choice, you know, you wouldn't shoot it like that. But it kind of actually, it worked in the sense that we were like, oh my God, he's like, at that moment, you just wanted those two to stay together. Um, so, that, so yeah, sometimes you can kind of end up getting lucky like that. I love I love the cast read through um, and pre production. For me, it's it's sort of the one time you sort of hear the story as one before mm. you sort of break it up into a million different pieces um, while you're shooting. And so I really hold on to that 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 read through as a quite a um, important um, memory through mm. the shooting process. I think it's a really so it's really cool to hear that even in those moments you can be changing the script as you're going going through. Um, so once you got through to the other side of the shoot, the the um, and and you're an editor, um, so you've got an editor. Sorry, an editor background. Um, you were an editor, um, but what was the editing process like? And and from when you started editing through to when you got to uh, a locked cut and it took us a while actually. It took, and sometimes it does, you know, take a while to find that sort of best version of the film. And and actually, in education, was it was a bit like that as well. You know, it's, it's, sometimes it's kind of quite hard, a bit hard to put your finger on it. Like the end worked totally, but we did. I was telling you, we, we I'm a, I, I really am a believer in the kind of testing process. And even when I worked in editing in New Zealand, we used to, you know, kind of do cuts and take them and test them. You know, which is really just like playing it to a sort of target audience and sitting in the theatre watching their reactions and feeling them. It's, it's so, I always found it so, so helpful. And it's no good showing it to friends I've never found. It's really just like strangers off the street, but who would be your target audience to see the movie. So we, we did one of our first screenings to our financiers, which was disastrous, really. They were like, get rid of the editor, start the film in New York. It's really boring up to that point. Um, do this, do that. So it was a bit like, and the director was like, oh, what are we going to do now? Are we still going to have that screening tomorrow? And I'm like, yeah, we should absolutely have the screening tomorrow. And if the 250 strangers feel the same way as our backers, um, <laughs> then, then, yeah, we'll just have to kind of like take it from there. But And it wasn't. It was early in the process. And that's the thing. It's for like writing a script and having drafts. It's not like your first draft is never going to be perfect. It's a process. And through editing and honing and, you know, like, so you have to respect the process and not just think it's all got to be perfect, you know, the minute it gets out of the gate. So I, I'm a real believer in that. And I don't, you know, like, panic, not outwardly anyway. But I wasn't actually. I felt, I was just like, I was excited to show it to strangers. And it went, it went really well. And for the director and editor, they kind of knew exactly what they wanted to do just from you know, where people were restless or, and then the, they feel like cards and that, that was helpful to an extent, but actually I think sitting there, especially in that first screening, so that we just worked away on the cut and then we did like more screenings and, you know, more audience screenings and got it to where we wanted to. I mean, I think for some of our backers, it was, 
when they'd come to that read-through, because Nick Hornby's actually very funny, it was so, and Julie Wood, it was such a hilarious read-through, I think for a minute they all thought we were making a totally different movie. <laughs> so, so in some ways that also might have, they're like, oh, it's not as funny as the read-through. It's like, well, we're not making a radio play. <laughs> it's like, so, but it all worked out really well, and I think it was just holding our nerve, and I think, you know, someone who worked for the distribution company in the UK was like, well, if you take it off to Sundance and you don't sell it, you know, just be prepared that you're going to have to replace the score or do this or do that. And it's really just sometimes like shutting out that noise. I mean, I think it's important to listen because, and even, you know, the feedback, and some of the feedback was, was really helpful. Don't get me wrong. I'm just, you know, I'm exaggerating slightly, but... It's important to listen because the chances are there's something not quite working and it might not be what they're identifying or saying, but it's just, and that's actually where the test screenings with, you know, the 250 strangers really helped us hone it. Um, and it took us a while to get the beginning right because it wasn't, there was an element we had added which we were able to take away, which was much better, and also... We had some art department issues on the first day of shoot, which was the opening shot. It, it, you know, like, there were just some things, so it did just take us a while to, yeah, figure that out. And, and once we did, then it was, we were sort of off, you know, it was good. And with the fin that, that screening with the finances, did they get to come to the test screening with the audience? Or would, was it, a, like, how did you get them out of there sort of rough? Well, we sort of paid, for, we tend to just do those and put them in the budget and do it ourselves for our own process rather than it be, like, a big, you know, official NRG type one. Um, we'd always invite them. I don't, I don't think anybody came to that first one. So did you have to then convince them... That no, they were I think, wrong. <laughs> well, it's a sort of process, isn't it? We're like, it played well and and actually it was having a lot of, you know, the, the Canadians weren't so involved really. I mean, you know, we'd give them all the cuts obviously and, you know, be open to anybody's feedback. Um, I think it's just, and look, I think they are probably, you know, distributors and your sort of BBC and Film 4s, they're involved. They put a little, you know, a bit of money in a lot of films and not every film, it's hard to make a good film and it's hard to make one that works. I mean, no one ever sets out to make a bad one, but it, it you know, it is. It's, you, it's, uh, a lot, you need a lot of elements and, you know, to come together. And um, I think they probably just thought, oh, it's okay, but it's probably not one of those ones that's, you know, and then they sort of move on a bit to the next ones they've got to focus on. So, no, I mean, they supported us you know, making the film we wanted to make. And I think if those test screenings hadn't gone well, it would have been, you know, we would have... And there would have been scores that might have come out of those you could use to sort of... Ex I think, I don't, yeah, they never... I'm not entirely sure that they were even convinced that by that... Pro you know, it's just people have their own views sometimes. Mm. Yeah, maybe if they, they didn't come to those screenings, but... Um, but, like, there was a scene we had shot in a sort of near hurricane in Montreal that we really, we always knew we needed to reshoot, but we sort of shot it because we just thought, oh, we just may not ever get to do it again. And in post-production, nobody was going to give us money to, to, to shoot that, to reshoot it. But fortunately, we sort of had enough contingency to just, to sort of, not gamble, but kind of go, all right, we'll use, we'll use the bulk of that money to, re, to do this reshoot. 
which mm -hmm. I do remember people being a bit surprised we were doing it, but it was we had control over the budget, so we used it for that. And it was a, it was um, it was really really worth doing. It was the last scene for those of you who've seen the film, where Ailish Sesh's character goes back to New York and is talking to the girl, and so their hair was whipping around right, like this, yeah. and you know it was all sort of. Um, Wild, yeah, yeah. not what you wanted at the end no, of the movie. So, yeah. And so once you had that, we've only got about 10 minutes to go, and um, if you've wanted to ask any questions, I'm going to look at the Slido app shortly. Um, but the journey from, you know, you finish, the lock the film and you, you start submitting it for festivals and, and um, you got into Sundance, but can you talk about, um, I mean, if that process is, you know, there's so many room, so many places where a film can fail, I suppose, in that journey, um, but it didn't happen for you. What was some of the more nerve-wracking moments in that process? What, was it nerve-wracking figuring out if you were going to get into Sundance, or was that something you thought you, was going to happen? Well, we weren't sure whether Sundance was the right place to launch the film, and we were only, we only just got it finished in time. I took it over and, you know, showed it to CAA, I think it was like in November, and then they showed it to, because CAA was doing the US sale for us, and they showed it to Sundance. Yeah, because we, we, with an education, they took it because it was like the birth of a new talent and a new star in Kerry Mulligan. And with this, it was sort of like, because they don't tend to take period, you know, quite straight period films aren't really what they go for. So, um, but we sort of came up with it like it was a transformative role for Saoirse. That was, you know, a big part of it. Um, and so they did, yeah, so they took it. And and we kind of thought, look, it worked for an education, so why not, you know, in a way. Like, is can the place to sell it, you know, like, do we wait? It was all of that. And we thought, well, if Sundance doesn't take it, then we can submit to Cannes. So we hadn't submitted to anybody else. Like, Sundance was the first. And then, you know, that was great. The screening was amazing. We had this incredible bidding war. But, like, when it started, the screening started, I was like, oh, it's too loud. Nobody's ever going to buy this. It's too loud. <laughs> You just like talk to yourself, and I had a, a director friend sitting next to me who wasn't the director, and I'm like, "Is it too loud?" And anyway, it's kind of crazy what goes through your mind, and so that was all great. And then you know we went with Searchlight, and um, and that's you know that's January, mm. and then that's a long time before they relaunch it, if you like, in Toronto for the kind of awards. You know, and there's a lot of films come and go, and it was the same. It was the same journey with an education, Sundance, all the way through to the Oscars. It's over a year, and so when that screening in Toronto then becomes such an essential screening, it's like, will we just be like yesterday's news? Because we were, mm. it was nine, eight months ago, and then it's like, then Searchlight is you're sort of like, I don't know, in the gym of some hotel, you'll know this, and you're seeing these ads for your movie, and you're like but it's only on four screens in America and they're spending all this money for, like... So it's very... But they, like, are so brilliant. They totally know what they're doing, but it's a, it's just nerve-wracking. Like, yeah, will you, will you still be... Will you get nominations at the Golden Globes? Oh, we only got one. Oh, OK. And that was, the same, was exactly the same as an education, you know. It's and like, so when you were making that... Because you'd had the experience with an education, when, mm. you were, when you're in that bidding war, which is, like, the best place you can be at at Sundance, mm. and, you're, and there's multiple offers... Were the decision, was the decision to go with Searchlight based on the highest price or was no. it based on something else? It wasn't the highest price, actually. We, we had higher. I think we, we all, you know, um, Nick, who's a partner with us on it, and John, 
Crowley, the director, you know, we all wanted to work with Searchlight. Um, Nick had just had a great experience with them on Wild. You know, they're really classy. Um, we love working with Sony Classics, who were totally, you know, right up there as well. But, yeah, we just, we were, we were like, we just felt, we love their pitch and we just felt, let's go with Searchlight. And they weren't the highest. It was just like, yeah, let's go with them. And were they selling you the awards um, conversation? Yeah, was that everybody, part of their pitch? Well, everybody Everyone was. was yeah, yeah, everybody was, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was amazing too because at the end of the screening when the credits were still rolling, Torsten and Micah, the guys who were selling it, both came over and said, you're going to be fine, you know, the reviews are great. And I'm like, what, already? And they were like, basically, the, the tweets, everything was coming on board so far, you know, coming in so fast. And that was a real change from an education, like, as in how it had just changed and, you know, it happened so quickly. So they could have been coming over and going, Oh, it's not looking very good. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty yeah. exciting, um, heady uh, time through that from that point on because you've done, in a way, you've done your job, you've created a great film and now you're part of the, pro, the, the showcase that's sort of going to roll it out and obviously very nerve-wracking in these moments because there's, a, you know, like you say, very flippant stages but each time you kind of get to the next stage, another sort of another level opens up, doesn't it? That's what it yeah, feels Yeah, and each, like. each stage, I think, is the most important stage. That's what I would say from, like, yeah, when you're working on the script to getting it together, putting, you know, um, yeah. Hey, I should have looked at this a lot earlier because <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, there's some really, um, there's been a lot of people putting thumbs up on some of these questions. So um, I will switch to that now, Fanola. So one of the questions here is, um, do you find it easier to get things off the ground and onto the screen overseas? And if so, why uh, would it... If so, what would make it easier than easier other than budget? Ah, living overseas. Ah. Is that... Do you think that has put you in a better position in terms of getting projects up and running? I don't know, because I've been there a long time. But, I, you know, part of choosing, you know, Brooklyn today and just talking to Jackie and the, the team behind this event is that it's really to, you know, to think about working with partners in other countries, that you can actually get quite a lot of, you know, money that way and not it's not about sacrificing creative vision, it's about how you can achieve something and achieve something at maybe sort of a higher budget the way you want to do it. Um, I mean, I've been really, I mean, I didn't, like, I went to London because my then husband was there, not because I thought, oh, I want to, I'd never thought I'd leave New Zealand at all. But I've, I've been really lucky and I've worked with lots of amazing people. So it's, a lot of the, the, the stories we choose to tell, they're not necessarily on paper the most obvious or the most commercial, you know. So, None of them particularly have been, or I work with a director who's never directed before, like someone like Dustin Hoffman, who was seen as like either a great idea or a terrible idea, you know, like, and he was genius to work with. But it's about, you know, I don't mind taking risks, but it, I like taking risks actually, but it doesn't always make it the most easiest to put together. So I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily been overseas or not. Yeah, helps. I don't know. Okay, so any um, another question. Any production laws that you think New Zealand could benefit from? In a session yesterday, panellists said New Zealand creators were undervalued and overworked. Um, so I think there's sort of two questions, but I suppose it's sort of, is there anything that you think New Zealand could be doing differently that might 
change um, its sort of place in the world's filmmaking? Yeah, when I said telefilm laws, they're not really laws, they're just co-production <laughs> rules. <laughs> Is that what that means, do you think, talking about? I don't... Yeah. I, I think it's... And um, who's, who's overworked and under... What, creators, as in writers? Creatives, yeah, writers, right, yeah. yeah. I think because the budgets here are lower for local production, yeah, um, it means that you know there's a, a set, there's a, like a ceiling very you know early on in terms of how much you can. Well, pay I think people. I suppose you can look at co-production as a way to. I mean, I could have never ever made Brooklyn if I hadn't done it as a co-production, because the market was basically t probably telling me it was like about a three million, five million dollar film, you know, which we could have never made it for that. Never, well, not a film I would have wanted to make or see, and doing it as a co-production you know, was really the only way to do it. So I think you can think outside what's available in New Zealand. Don't just limit your vision to here all the time. I mean, sometimes it might be great to just do it here and make complete sense to. Does that sort of answer that? I think it does, yeah. I think the thing here is it's difficult. Um, if you, Even if you have a success, um, the next day, there is, it doesn't mean that you, this, there's a scale that you can um, go on to a higher budget project straight away because there is yeah. just this limit. So I think co-production is a really... Yeah. yeah, a good suggestion for that. So when looking for directors, um, what do you look for from them to assess if they're right for the project? I think this is, you know, really having an affinity and, and you know, that you just really feel they kind of understand the story and the work. It's, um, you know, that you, I mean, I think I'll often look for directors that I think are great with performance, you know, can know how to tell a story, have demonstrated they're good storytellers, um, and I think, you know, filmmaking is such a collaborative process and you want, you want your director to have a vision for sure, you know, that they've got a real handle and command of what it is they want to tell. Because, and we love working with writer-directors as well, and, but it's just if they're coming on to a script you've developed, we never want them to be like a director of hire, we want them to come with their vision for absolute sure. Because they're, they're the director, you know, um, so in that situation, and even with John, were you asking, when you sent the script out, were you asking them to pitch back their vision? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and their take, I suppose. Yeah, what is it that, you know, because sometimes you can meet great directors and they actually want to tell a different story than is there on, in, the, in the screenplay, you know. Yeah. And that's fine, but it's like not going to work. Not the know? right match, yeah. 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 Hey, and this takes us around, this last question takes us around to um, the distribution side, which we were just talking about. Mm. Um, how much involvement did you have in the theatrical release of the film, or were you relatively hands-off once it was in the hands of the distributors? Um, yeah, quite a lot, you know, in terms of be across the, the trailers and all the materials. Someone like Searchlight, they'll absolutely let you be part of the process, but as you probably experienced, they... And they're they're really really good at what they do as well. They've got a they've got a very they understand their market. You know they know their market, but they'll still be respectful and listen to your kind of input and yeah. But I think in terms of being involved, you stay as involved as you need to be. And sometimes, if you do, I, if you are fortunate to get on this sort of awards journey, then getting the talent to turn up and keep coming back, even though sometimes it might seem like completely pointless, because it's like, here we are in LA again, what are we doing exactly? Um, that's a, an important part of it as well, yeah. And you're, you're, yeah, like you're saying, you're sort of like the gel between the distributor who they might not know as well and the relation to the, to yeah. the origin of the film. Well, often it, just picking up the phone to your actors or your director and writer or whatever and saying, 
it's really important. But the agents play a big part of that as well. Yeah, they can be really useful. Cool. Well, thank you, uh, Fanola, for taking us through that journey. Um, one of the things I just really admire about your career is that you are really passionate because this is an enormous, I don't know how many years it was from <laughs> when you first discovered that book, but I think all of your films that I've seen, I, I can see that you have a real high sense of quality that you're trying to achieve, and, and um, I, that's, I aspire to be a producer like you. So thanks for being here, and thanks for sharing that with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. The Big Screen Symposium 2020 was brought to you by Script to Screen and J&A Productions. We gratefully thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Te Mangai Paho, Images and Sound, Screen Auckland and AUT. Voiceover is by me, La Lena Faunati, and music by Poddington Beard.